I want us to look in Matthew chapter 26 this morning as we continue to move through the book of Matthew. We're hitting a new chapter, in fact, a new section, okay, a whole new section, and it kind of moves us into the last, really the climax of the whole book, uh, what we've really been ultimately leading up to in all this study of the life of Jesus, Matthew chapter 26. As you look there... Um, uh, before I read the text, I'm, I don't think I'll do a long introduction today because we're in a new section. I just want to point your attention to the first few words of the first verse. We'll see it in a moment on the screen, but look at it just with your eyes at the Bible in front of you. It says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, okay, so all these sayings represents a lot, okay? This has been a long, long day that is coming to a culmination that we're that we've been in, all right? So it didn't occur to me until like maybe Thursday or Friday. I think it was Thursday night, late, maybe even Friday morning, early, when it dawned on me what that phrase meant when Jesus had finished those three words, all these sayings. You say, what does that mean? Those three words, all these sayings, guys, represents the last five chapters. Um, it represents the last six months that we've been studying the book of Matthew together. You'll remember there was this triumphal entry, and then the day, that was on a Sunday, and then the day after that, there was Jesus cleansing the temple, and then we launched into this day that that represents. Matthew, in particular, as he studies the life of Christ, has written about five major discourses that Jesus has spoken, five major teaching sections. We just finished the fifth of, and the last one. The fifth one is now behind us when Jesus had finished all these sayings. And so this represents a long, long day. And so now Jesus is getting ready to switch course on his topic. Uh, you say, what was this long day about? So remember, on the Sunday, he triumphantly enters into the city of Jerusalem. On, on Monday, he goes back. This is Passover week. He goes back on the Monday, and he cleanses the temple of the money changers who were charging way too much and taking advantage of people and turned religion into a money-making scam. So he runs them out of the temple on Monday and teaches. But then Tuesday morning, all day long, public teaching, being attacked, faced with trap questions by the Sadducees and the Pharisees trying to trip him up, get him in legal trouble. He always turns it. He defeats them every time. Then he gives these parables one after another to apply to the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel. Ultimately, he ends up giving these seven woes, these seven pronunciations of judgment, sorrow, affliction that is coming on the scribes and Pharisees and even spilling over to the nation of Israel, so much so that he talks about privately to his disciples, the temple will be destroyed. And then, this is still all this same long day, and then his disciples ask him in private, what will be the sign? What will be the indication? When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of your coming, your second coming, and of the end of the age? When will that happen? And so the Lord spends two chapters answering that. And we've been hearing this over and over the last seven weeks. Be ready for the Lord's return by being saved and serving. And so now today, we're going to move forward and we're going to see another thing that we really should be doing all throughout. We're going to see a great example of someone who represents the songs that we just sang, a very important passage in the New Testament. And I'm going to confess, I know I'm not going to give justice to this section that we're getting ready to read, 
but we need to study it together. Would you even be prayerfully reading this and asking, Lord, would you speak to my heart what I need to hear from the example that will be before us this morning? So here it is, probably the Tuesday. Some say it's the Wednesday of the Passover week. Verse number 1. Here we go. New chapter, verse 1 through 13. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, long, long day, he said to his disciples, picture it, he's talking to the, to the 12, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. They know the first part of verse 2. You know that after two days the Passover is coming. Yes, they do. Now watch what he attaches. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He has now put a time frame on the being delivered up and being crucified. So that's one scene. Meanwhile, about two miles away, roughly two miles away, verse 3 is happening. Then the chief priests, that's one group, and the elders, these are the non-Levite leaders of the nation of Israel. By the way, the book of Mark adds this that there were the, the scribes were also there. We know the scribes are the scribes of the Pharisees. So really the whole gamut, maybe not all the members of the Sanhedrin are at Caiaphas's house, but many of them and all the groups are represented. Verse 3, then the chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest. So you have the chief priest gathered in the palace of the high priest with the elders and the scribes of the Pharisees. The high priest whose name was Caiaphas. What are they doing? And plotted together in order to arrest Jesus. That's number one. This is the plot. To arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. Number one, arrest him by stealth. Number two, kill him. But they said, kind of the main takeaway from their meeting is not just the the who and the what and how and the when and all of that. It's, It's this factor of when. They said, not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. This is apparently one of the last things that are going away. We will do these two things, but we will not do it during the feast. Can't have an uproar among the people. Rome will not stand for that. We don't want that kind of trouble. So we've got to be very strategic. Now verse 6 is a whole different scene. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, Bethany is a town, a village about two miles away from Jerusalem. When Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, So we need to clarify right there, Simon was a leper. Apparently he is known as Simon the leper. He's not a leper anymore. We can be quite confident of that because if he was, Jesus and the disciples would not have been there. No one would have been in his house, especially during the week of Passover, because according to the book of Leviticus, they would have been ceremonially defiled and unable to participate in Passover. So this is the idea of this man either. And by the way, leprosy is not just the Hansen's disease that we think of today that is all but gone in our part of the world and maybe still exist in Thailand and a few other places like that. This is, the historians say this is not that. Leprosy could be any kind of skin disease according to the book of Leviticus. And this man had that but had apparently either been cured in time but probably, no, it doesn't say, probably was healed by Jesus. Now back to verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, couple miles away from Jerusalem, in the house of Simon the leper, who used to be a leper, a woman came up to him, to Jesus, with an alabaster flask. This is kind of a whitish-looking stone that is very soft in nature, and you can carve it, and you can make bottles and flask out of it and fill it with things. 
a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. That's all Matthew's going to say. He's not going to give details. Very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Simon is throwing a meal. Reclined at table means the Lord is the honor, the guest of honor, and he's reclining, which is how they ate their meals. As he's reclining, she comes up, pours this flask of very expensive ointment on the head of Christ. So there's a big act of the, of the passage. Verse 8's the fallout. And when the disciples saw it, a while ago, I caught the word as we were singing. It was the word together. I forget which song it was, but let us praise him together. What should have happened here is all the people in the room should have got together with this woman who's worshiping the Lord, and they should have got behind that and said, yes, yes, you, Lord Jesus, yes, you, and we're with her and what she's doing, and, and we're behind it. But instead, verse 8 took place. But I hope verse, verse 8 is not anywhere present in this room this morning. And when the disciples saw it, what she did, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? And I thought about that. When Jesus hears that word, waste, what look goes on here? She's doing this. It's running down him. Very expensive ointment that she's done to honor the Lord. The disciples see it. They're indignant. And they say, why this waste? Why did you waste Wait, are you saying what goes on me is wasted? But the Lord is very patient. Why are they indignant? And again, we're going to see in a moment. A little bit later, we're actually going to see it, which we're not always able to do, but we're going to read John's account of the same thing just for some information to round out because Matthew doesn't give all the details that perhaps we might want to know. Verse 9, here's why they're indignant. And I believe some of them were sincere. And I know one of them was not sincere, according to John. But verse 9, here's why they're indignant. For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Why did you waste it that way? This could have, if you were going to do that, you could have sold it. It could have been given to the poor. It made a huge difference. It was a lot of money. But Jesus, aware of this, verse 10, that phrase is unique. That's a little odd sounding. It's... Did you catch that? Jesus, who's been anointed, you would think it says, but Jesus said to them, but it says, but Jesus aware of this. So that tells me there's some development of time that has taken place. There's layers to this as it unfolds. Verse 8 and 9 don't just happen immediately on the spot. Apparently it carries over somewhere. I don't know if there's another room, another section of the room, whispered, muttering. Apparently those kinds of things are happening, but verse 10 eventually happens. But Jesus, aware of this, what they've said, and their big reason for why it should have been sold, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? Why do you trouble the woman? Mark gives a stronger uh, uh, answer that the Lord gives. For she, according to Matthew here, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. That's a statement by the Lord then. It is proven true to our day. This is absolutely true. Everything Jesus says is true. You would think after all the money and the millions and billions of dollars that has been spent on charity that we would have no poor people anywhere else in the world. But today we still have them. If, if the Lord doesn't come back for 100 years, we will still have them in 100 years. This is just the fact. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And in 
a not super clear verse. I'm going to go with what it says, but allowing that it could mean something a little different. Verse 12, Jesus says to them, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. She has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Wherever this gospel, I'm, guys, I tell you truly, I'm telling you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And that the fact that we're studying this today is fulfilling verse number 13. Would you notice four things with me in our text this morning? The first one's the first five verses. I'm just kind of couple it with this thought. Number one, there's an evil plot by Israel's leaders. There's an evil plot. Very simple. You read this, these five verses, you see it right off the bat. There's an evil plot by Israel's leaders. It's been a long day. Jesus has finished all these sayings. And then according to verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So the Lord has been talking about his second coming in power and great glory, and now he shifts very suddenly the topic to no longer talking that far into the future. He's talking just to the immediate future, just a couple of days from the time that he's speaking to his disciples. What's he doing? He's continuing to try to train them and prepare them for his upcoming death. Guys, this started, and some of you will remember this, way back when Peter answered the question, whom do men say that I am? And they answered, and Jesus says, who do you all say that I am? And Jesus says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And so Jesus then, shortly after that, says, he starts telling them, the son of man, that's his title for himself, the son of man will be suffering many things. We're going to Jerusalem. I will suffer many things. I will be killed, and I will rise again on the third day. That's chapter 16. Chapter 17, same thing. The Son of Man is going to suffer many things, and he will be killed and rise again the third day. But in chapter 20, a third time the Lord does it, but this time he adds a unique little twist because he gets more specific. He says, the Son of Man is going to suffer many things. We're going to Jerusalem. I'll suffer many things, and he's not just going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified, and I'll rise again three days later. And now the Lord is coming back and again rehearsing this and trying to prepare his disciples. If you're taking notes, write this thought, because really what stands out in verse 2 is many attributes of Christ, but I'm going to have you focus just for a moment on two things that this proves. When he says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. By saying that his crucifixion will be in just two days now, the Lord is revealing, I'm going to qualify it. He's revealing his access to omniscience because he's God in the flesh. He has access to omniscience, though he doesn't walk around with omniscience at all times. And it also reveals and illustrates the fact of his great courage. So he knows things. He says, in two days it's the Passover, and in two days I will be delivered up, and I will be crucified. Guys, you've been hearing me say this for months. It's about to happen. We're two days away. You're 48 hours away. It's coming. And now the Lord is getting very specific. So what he's saying here is he's revealing his omniscience and he's revealing his courage. Why? Because he knows the exact location. He knows the exact timing and the exact method of his death. Nobody in here knows any one of those three things. 
no one listening right now, you don't know for sure where you will die, the exact when you will die, and you don't know exactly how you will die. We're not sure. We have no clue. We're 0 for 3 on those things. Jesus was 3 for 3. And I got to tell you, knowing what we know about crucifixion, if we knew I'm going to die by crucifixion in two days from now, we would not stay in Jerusalem if we thought that was where it was at. But the Lord shows courage along with his omniscience by staying and finishing the course. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, in town, so he's out of town. He's there at the Mount of Olives heading perhaps to Bethany. We'll talk about that in a moment. But across town is verse 3 through 5 is taking place. The leaders of Israel are the enemies of Jesus. They've been wanting to kill him for over a year. They've actually made some attempts, but Jesus has always escaped. But now, you feel it building. What happened on Sunday, the triumphal entry, followed by cleansing the temple. That's our moneymaker. You didn't have a right to do that in their eyes. What he did on, on Monday, along with what he did on Tuesday, totally embarrassing them. They come to him with these trap questions. And Jesus turns it on them and totally defeats them in the trap questions. And so now fully embarrassed, they're making up their mind, we will accomplish this and we will do it very, very soon. It will happen in this season. But here, guys, here's their dilemma. Here's the trouble. Jesus is not usually in the city of Jerusalem. His ministry is up in Galilee, but now we have him in Jerusalem. But there's a problem. There's so many people have flooded Jerusalem. And many of these people, especially the Galileans, they love him. They think he's the Messiah. They're just waiting for him to set up shop, and they're ready to, to die for him and go to war for him. They love him, and so we've got to be careful how we do it. Here's the dilemma. We have to get him while he's in town before he leaves, but we can't do it too early so that word gets out and people come and try to rescue him. So we have to arrest him, but we have to do it by stealth, and then we will kill him. When everybody goes back home, then we'll kill him. Stealth. Notice in verse 4, they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So guys, let me hit this quickly because I want to get to the second point this morning. These guys have a title that you would think makes them religious spiritual leaders. They're the chief priests. They're the elders of the nation of Israel. This is the high priest. But guys, they're really only politicians. They're just politicians. They're worried mainly about what with the Roman Empire who rules above us. We can't do anything. We can't allow anything that would cause an uproar during the Passover. And the Passover, man, Jerusalem is like a powder keg at any time ready to go off. And so we have to be careful. We can't let that happen. They're just politicians. I read something several times in two or three commentaries this week that I had heard part of it, but I'd never heard the other. And boy, it really shed some light for me on Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest. He's the one who's called this meeting in his courtyard at the palace. Let me ask you a question. In the Old Testament, how long did high priests generally rule? They ruled until what? When? Till death. You rule till you die. And then there's a new high priest that's anointed, and he rules until he dies. And then there's a new one, and it just goes on and on. So here was, here's what was really stuck out to me. The historians tell us that Caiaphas reigns for 18 years. I already knew that. I think it's somewhere around 18 um, A.D., until after the birth of Christ, until around 36 A.D., so around 18 years. But what was unique is he reigns during a time period under the Roman Empire when in a hundred-year time span, Israel had 28 high priests. Let that sink in. 
28 high priests in only about 100 years. Take out his 18 years, leave the other 27 for the rest of that about 100 years, and it means that the other 27 average about three. So that tells me something. Why is this guy 18 years when the rest average three years? His father-in-law was the high priest right before him, and Annas is still a very powerful man. That's his father-in-law. But now Caiaphas keeps it for 18 years. Why? Because he's cunning. He's crafting. He's very calculated. He's very cautious. I'm sorry, I really didn't mean to put all the C words. That's just those are the words, right? He's very calculating in what he does. And so the idea that we get as they're coming out of this meeting, in his mind, the main thing, the main thing is we can't do it during the feast of Passover that's followed immediately by seven days, the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. We'll spend that time period in just a few weeks from now. We can't do it while all the people are here. And we're thinking, okay, how many people are actually in Jerusalem? Well, we don't know for sure, but I also read this from multiple people, and I thought it was interesting. I'll share it quickly. Maybe a couple of decades after the time period we're here, one of the Roman emperors wanted to know just how many Jews gather at Passover. And I would think this would be even less because Christians are no longer in going really and in, in insisting to be at the Passover. So they have no way of knowing how many Jews are actually flooding the city of Jerusalem, but the emperor had a good idea, and so he had the high priest at that time take a census of how many lambs are sacrificed. That's one way to tell how many lambs are sacrificed. And so in obedience to the Roman Empire, they counted, and here's what they came up with at one of the Passovers, 256,500 lambs were sacrificed. So you talk about the Levites are very busy during this week, 256,000. 500 Passover lambs. You say, wow, quarter of a million people. No, no, no. According to the book of Leviticus, each lamb had to have a minimum of 10 people eat it. A minimum. So you wouldn't just get one for you and your family. You'd have a minimum of 10 people. 256,500 lambs with a minimum, could be more, a minimum. You start running those numbers, we realize, okay, later they have at least two and a half, probably three million Jews just descending on the city of Jerusalem, and they have great patriotic favor, fervor, and they're, they're just very zealous for the Lord, and this is a tremendous time for them. And so here the city of Jerusalem, Caiaphas knows, probably three million people are here, and the last thing we need is those crazy Galileans who think Jesus is the Christ. We don't need to offend them and cause an uproar because Rome will come down hard on me, and I'll lose my job. And he, doesn't want to, and he knows how to keep his job. So verse 5 is their plan. So I have one more note for you, I think, in verse, based off verse 5. They said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Uh, those of you that have read the Bible multiple times, does their plan end up happening? Anybody? Does their plan? Their plan is, has to be after the feast. Jesus must not die until after the feast. Their plan is totally thwarted. Why? Guys, God is wanting us to see something about himself. By putting verse 1 and 2 where Jesus says it's going to be in two days, and then here's their plan anytime after the feast, not during the feast. And then next week's message, Lord willing, verse 14, 15, 16, here's what happens. God sovereignly uses the offer of Judas in verse 15 to God ensures that Jesus' death happens exactly during the Passover. Why? There are theological reasons, there are symbolic reasons, but I believe there's also just practical reasons. Write this down. God sovereignly uses Judas' offer to ensure that 
that Jesus' death is during Passover so that millions of Jews, think about this, millions of Jews will go home from the Passover talking about what? Not just the Passover, but the word on the street and the word all throughout would have been they crucified Jesus. And they're going to be talking about not just his crucifixion, but his resurrection. Or in their mind, again, we're talking about just within days, the rumored resurrection of Christ. God controls all things. They had their plan. God had another plan. God's plan ends up being carried out. Picture the scene as you're writing. Still be listening. You're writing those words. Right? So Jewish males, 20 years old and up, would go down to the Passover feast. And women are welcome to go. And little children are welcome to go. But not all the women and the children would go. Picture as these people are heading back home. And they get back home. And there's the wife and the little kids. And maybe she's over there cooking something or vacuuming the house. Not that they had the electricity back then. But you get the idea. She's cooking. She's washing the dishes. Hanging the laundry. And all that. Hey, how's it going? It's good. It's great. Man, we missed you. How was Passover? Kind of like all the rest? Oh, no, no. You, you got to sit down. Why? Well, we've got some good news and we've got some bad news. Well, which should I hear first? Well, you've you got to hear the bad news first because the good news won't make any sense unless you hear the bad news. Can you picture this? Here are all these millions going home, and here's what they're saying. Honey, they killed Jesus. What? They killed No, 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 no. They, they crucified Jesus, and he died. Well, there is no good news. Nothing can be good. No, 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 no. Here's the kicker. There's a buzz in the streets. They can't find his body. All his followers are running around saying they've seen him. And he's, you remember how he kept saying he's going to rise again. Something's going on. We know he died. They crucified him. But word has it, he's alive. I'm going back for Pentecost. I want to see if there's more. Pentecost is about 50 days later. God knew what he was doing. He was spreading the word in advance. Number two. Let's notice verse 6 and 7. A beautiful act of worship. A beautiful act of worship. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. So normally we don't do this, and I mean, we probably have to do it more in the coming days, but would you flip over to John chapter 12? I want you to go over there, John 12, because John adds some details that we need to know. John chapter 12. And right out of the gate, you're going to see a discrepancy and I'm going to offer a couple of options how to explain the discrepancy, right? So you're looking at John chapter 12, verse number 1. John 12, 1. So we're, we're, we're preaching and teaching through Matthew today. John chapter 12, look at verse number 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came. So we're backing up in time, right? Actually, I need to go this way on your, your time frame. We're backing up from where we're at in verse 1 and 2 of Matthew 26, where Jesus says two days the Passover. John is now talking. He says six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. This is Lazarus and Martha and Mary's hometown. So the Lord comes to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Just days earlier, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, being four days dead, he went away, and now he's back to Bethany because it's just on the outskirts of town for the Passover. And apparently he stays there that night, and the next day after this would be the triumphal entry. So we're going back in time. So verse 2 says, so they gave a dinner for him there. This passage does not tell us the name of the host, but we know the name of the host is Simon, who used to be a leper. But now we're going to find out other people are also, because they're in the same town, they know each other, apparently they're friends. So verse 2 says, so they gave a dinner for him there. 
Now, so Jeff, what's the issue? Was, is, did, does this anointing happen two days before the Passover, or does it happen six days before the Passover? I can't tell you for sure, but here's what I'll say. There's actually a way, and, and the truth is, is somewhere in there. What could be happening in verse 1 is that Jesus arrives at Bethany six days later, and this anointing actually happens Six days before the Passover, he arrives six days before the Passover. This anointing happens two days before the Passover. That is possible. Or Matthew and Mark both are doing a flashback for us to what actually happened three or four days earlier. So if they're on the Tuesday night, uh, in, in the time period we're, we're looking at in the flow of Matthew, it is possible that Matthew and Mark does the same thing, are doing a flashback to what actually happened Saturday. Here's the main point. Whether it's Tuesday night or Saturday night, it doesn't matter. The main thing is what happened. So now go back to verse 2. So Lazarus was there, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there. He's the guest of honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at him with table. Mary, therefore, Matthew and Mark say, a woman, John, years later, John writes after Matthew and Mark, and he, I think maybe, I don't, think maybe the Holy Spirit for sure wanting to further honor what the Lord says in Matthew 26 13 that she'll be remembered not only is she remembered some woman but the Holy Spirit inspires John I'm going to write her name down they just said a woman we're going to write her name down verse number three Mary therefore took a pound oh now we're getting details Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard nard would be this ointment these spices that come from India and so that's what makes it so expensive. So again, verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from nard and anointed thee. Oh, here's another detail. The feet of Jesus. She anoints the feet. That's not a contradiction. That's just an addition. In addition to anointing his head in Matthew and Mark, now she is anointing the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Jewish women would not let down their hair, especially after they were married. But here Mary, in the company of all these people in this room, she lets down her hair. And as she's anointing his feet, she wipes his feet with her hair. So much so that verse 3 continues, the house was filled. The house, John was there. John was close to Jesus. He's probably right. I mean, he's getting the biggest whiff of all, right? The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But remember the disciples had problems? John narrows it down to the real instigator, the one who stirred up the others, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples. He who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? Oh, now we know how much, how expensive it was. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? But John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. The poor you always have with you, you do not always have me. So here's what we have. Now we realize, wow. Not 100% sure exactly what day, but the point is what takes place. John names the woman as Mary. 
John tells us that these, these three brothers and sisters, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, they're also at this dinner. That tells us now at least, seven, again, you're going to have three million people crowding into a city. They're going to crowd into homes and have big meals. So at least 17 people are at this meal, at least probably more. You have Jesus, Simon, Lazarus, Martha, Mary, and the 12 disciples, and no doubt many more. We also learn that Mary anoints the feet and not just the head. We now know that this ointment was a pound of ointment, a very expensive, pure nard from India. I'm going to add one detail without reading over in the book of Mark. It, it, it has a stronger thing that the disciples and, and Judas do. Mark actually records that they scolded her. They scolded her, meaning, why did you do that? That's the idea. What are you doing? Why did you? Are you stupid? That's what's happening. And the Lord becomes aware of this. According to verse 10. Let's go back to Matthew 26. So there's a lot of emotion in this scene. So let's talk just for a moment about these three siblings. Lazarus is there. Hey, guys. Just by breathing and blinking and walking in. Do you guys understand Lazarus is a witness to the power of Jesus and to the true identity of Jesus just by existing because Jesus had raised him from the dead. Everything he says who he is, he is. As we sang a while ago, death and hell calls, call him victorious. When Jesus spoke and said, Lazarus, he didn't say just the dead come forth. That would, that would be too much. He singles out Lazarus after four days dead. And people around say, behold, by now he yet stinketh. He smells. His body's decomposing. It doesn't stop Jesus. Lazarus come forth and he comes out of the grave, still wrapped in his grave wrappings. And so that's just by existing, Lazarus is a witness. But he's at this meal. And so what's Lazarus doing? He's fellowshipping with the Lord, reclining with the Lord, having a good time. He and Jesus are friends. And then we have this second sibling, Martha. Martha's like a lot of us. We love Martha. Martha gets a bad rap. Listen to me. Martha is a practical woman. Martha's a get things done kind of person. We don't need to talk about it. We need to do it. Martha is the kind of person, apparently, by all indications, she has the gift of service, the spiritual gift of service, and she's using it to make food. After, he, after the day that the Lord Jesus had, I'll promise you, he is so thankful for the meal that Martha is heading up. She notifies other people helping her. And so Martha is serving, just like she did back in Luke 10 in another passage. On that passage, though, we know that she got angry because her sister Mary was not helping her prepare the meal. You remember that scene. So Lazarus is a witness and fellowshipping. Martha is a worker. She loves Jesus. Martha loves Jesus, and the way she shows it is, I'm going to serve him. So Lazarus is a witness. Martha's a worker. But guys, I think the point of our text is then there's Mary. And Mary is special. They're special. Listen to me. Mary is most special. Why? All week as I read this, I kept thinking of my favorite Old Testament character, and she just seems to be like the New Testament version of David. That's just who I kept thinking of. David's the best in the Old Testament, by the way, in case you didn't know that. Abraham's great, Moses is great, and Joseph's great, but David's the man, right? David's the best. This is his New Testament counterpart. Write this down. Mary, like David, had the heart of a worshiper. I mean, she's had the heart of a worshiper. This defines this lady. Lazarus is a witness. Martha's practical. 
Martha's using her gift of service like a lot of us here do. Many of you, you have the gift of service and you want to serve the Lord and you're very faithful at serving the Lord. But, but guys, here's we've come to study today. This one person, what makes her even a cut above is she has the heart of a worshiper. I'm thinking about David in the Old Testament. No one said to build God a temple. God, there was no command to build God a temple. But David loved the Lord so much it really bothered him. Lord, I have this palace and your tabernacle is a tent. It's a tent. And the Ark of the Covenant, I want to build you a temple. And the Lord thought it was a great idea, but you've shed too much blood. You're not going to be able to build it. You get the materials together and your son will build it. It's going to happen. No one said build a temple. No one tells Mary to anoint Jesus with all of this ointment. She just wants to do it. It's just in her. Boy, she's a lot like him when I think about it. So as I read this passage, there's a lot of things about real, genuine worship that we need to learn just as principles, guys. And I thought about, boy, we have five or six points, uh, subpoints under this. And so I don't have time. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to blend a couple of them, right? So we're going to put a couple together and we'll still be able to hit it, right? Here we go. Write this down. By looking at Mary, her anointing of Jesus, we learn a principle. It's a blended. Don't just write it. Guys, us just reading this text and talking about it today is not going to affect our life. But let's ask the Lord to make us more like this lady. More like David. Write the following. Real worship is costly. Real worship is often, I'm not going to say it's always costly, but it is often costly and it is willing to be extravagant. Real worship is often costly, and real worship is very willing to be extravagant. Does that describe your worship of the Lord, what we were singing about just a while ago? And by the way, I'm not just talking about when we sing. I'm not just talking about our corporate singing on Sunday morning for 17 minutes. I'm not just talking only about that, but it certainly includes that. Real worship is often costly, and it is willing to be extravagant. It desires to be extravagant, focused on the Lord. What do you mean costly? Well, the reason I had us read over in John, and also Mark alludes to it, is that we know that this ointment that was poured on Christ is worth 300 denarii. Y'all remember how much a denarii is worth? It's a day laborer's wage for a day of work. And so I'm going to again do what I did a couple of weeks ago when I talked about the talents. I'm going to give just a nice round number. If in our day, a day laborer makes about $100 a day, and this ointment was worth 300 denarii, then how much money is this worth? This ointment that she poured out would be roughly worth somewhere in our day the equivalent of how much money? How much? More than that. And so now you get a kind of a sense why some of the disciples being stirred up by Judas might be having a problem. But now you see that, man, this is really costly. And this is extremely extravagant. We're talking about a pound of ointment being poured out over the Lord. So I did a little research, just a few seconds, in my daughter's daughter's room last night. right? So I said, hey, which one of these costs how much? And she pointed to one, and that one probably costs maybe the most that she has. And it was a little... 0.8. 0.8. I don't know if it's the eau de tolle or whatever you call that, or the perfume. I don't know the difference between the two. All I know is perfume is more expensive than eau de tolle or whatever it is because it's more potent. Okay? What are you laughing at, Ray? You try to say it. 
You get a kick out of me trying to say these French words. I have no idea what they are. The point I want to make is when we go spend a lot of money, you spend like 60 bucks or, or 100 bucks. So you're like, I want to have a couple ounces of the real perfume. Okay, you're still getting a very diluted down. You're not getting the pure nard, the idea here, spices. And you're going to pay a couple hundred bucks for a two-ounce par- perfume. That's how you reach these numbers. The Lord, and by the way, when we get the good stuff, so you have the, the lighter, the more mixed one and you put some of that and like oh I know it wears off quick so you put some more and you and your mom is like what are you doing you give me a sore throat stop doing so much of that and you're like well I gotta have it and you and you do there and you do there and all this good stuff that's just a couple of little shots that's just a little mist that is not what's happening here what's happening here is the pure ointment of the nard I mean the the true stuff that's going to get cut and diluted and and mixed over and over and over that would make many, many, many other bottles. Somehow she has the real stuff, and she just pours it out on the Lord. I want you to write a thought that my pastor shared many years ago, and it stuck with me. He wrote that Jesus being anointed with such undiluted nard, so close to his trials and his crucifixion made him smell like a king during all of those phases. As the Lord is going to stand before, and being arrested in the garden, when they come up there, they're going to smell this on the Lord. I mean, the fragrance filled the house, John says. It's very potent. Filled the house. And so days and days later, this would still be just emanating. So he lives like a poor person, and he looks like a poor person, but he smells like an extremely rich person, all because of this act of Mary. She lavished her love. So I've been thinking the other day, why did Mary do this? Why? What drove her? You say, Jeff, she loved the Lord. Now, this is why I want you to pay attention. Do you love the Lord? But why does she love the Lord? What drives her to actually do this? You say, well, Jeff, verse number 12. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. In pouring the ointment out, Jesus says, pouring the ointment out on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. So there's a debate. We're not sure how much does that mean that she actually knew. So I'll offer some opinion in a little bit on that. But I got to thinking, what really drove this? I'm going to propose to you that because Mary was this one who liked to really be in tune and listen to the Lord. And she took what he said literally. And so I believe that she loves the Lord and she takes the step for a multitude of reasons. Watch. She knows because of his words who he is. This is the son of God. He deserves this. This is, I know he's the Christ. He deserves this. Perhaps she even knew this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. If he takes away the sin of the world, he's going to take away my sins. And so he deserves this. This is the one who loves me. This is the one, this is the one that she would have seen over and over heal people miraculously. And not one time was any case too hard for him. Simon, as an example, he deserves this. And if for no other reason, there sits her brother who just a few days ago was four days dead. And Jesus raised her brother to life, and there's going to be a meal for Jesus at Simon's house. And so apparently she swings by her house, bringing this with her, knowing I will not miss this opportunity. I will lavish this on my Lord. And so she breaks the thin neck on the alabaster, and she starts to pour it out on Christ. 
Mary's love moved her to worship the Lord. Can I ask you a quick question? Do you love the Lord? In your heart of hearts, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love God? Why do you love God? You say, why should I love God? Listen, do you serve God? Do you worship God? Let's just call it what it is. I know we get uncomfortable when we talk about this. Do you give to the Lord? Do you give to the Lord? Lord, I'm giving this to you. Do you give to the Lord? You say, Jeff, why should I? Jesus is your creator. You're a made thing. You are a creature. You were made to worship him. He deserves your best. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. The only reason you're able to be here this morning, the only reason you're able to hear and to see and to have your mind to think is because the Lord is sustaining you today, right now. Whatever you can do for him, he deserves it. He's worthy. He's our high priest that gives us a relationship with God the Father. He is, if you've trusted him as your Savior, he is the one who keeps you out of eternal punishment. He deserves whatever we can give him. He's our king. He's our Lord. He deserves what. So here's my question. If you had something that you really, Jeff, I just really value that so much. If you had something and the Lord's like, I want you in a way that costs you to extravagantly bestow that upon me, would you give it to the Lord? If he wanted it. You say, Jeff, like what? Your money. No, no, here we go. I don't preach on this. I probably preach on this. I'll bet you less than 90% of the pastors in this county. I'll bet you. I rarely do this. But if you hoard your money and you love your money so much, you never give the Lord any of it, something is wrong with you. You do not love the Lord like you may think you love the Lord. We, if you're like me, my time, my time is so valuable but are you willing at great cost to give to the Lord? You're like, yes, I give him Sunday mornings. I give him Sunday mornings, and that's it. And we give him more on Sunday morning than the other churches in the county, Jeff, because of you. Okay. Would you give it? Guys, can I tell you? I want to encourage us to be careful that we don't come in on a Sunday. And I'm not going to say this is cheap. I'm just going to say... It can be easy to come in on a Sunday and at little cost worship the Lord during four songs. You say, what do you mean little cost? I'm admitting that is a cost. You guys could be anywhere else today. You're not in other places. You're in the Lord's house and thank you for being here. But if that's all he gets from you is four songs for a few minutes on a Sunday morning and you endure a message, has that really cost you anything? I want to propose... What if we come in here and what we do on Sunday is just the first fruits on the first day of the week that's going to represent, Lord, you're going to have me and my time and my possessions. You're going to get the first of everything and anything that you ever want more and over and above that. God, I am willing to give it. I'm going to be meeting with you and walking with you, not just for four songs on Sunday morning. I want to know you. I want to spend time. My time is valuable and it's really crowded. But no matter what else is going on in my life, I'm going to etch out time. I will spend time with you and you alone and worship will be a heavy part of what I do. Does that describe your life? Write this, what William Barclay writes about Mary's offering here of pouring on the Lord. He writes that love never thinks how little it can decently give. 
Love never thinks, now what's the least I can get by with? I hope when you give an offering of money or your time or your energy and your talents, I hope you don't think, what's the least? What do I have to sign up for? Okay, put me down for the least. How much we got to give? What does the Bible say? How much we got to give? I haven't heard Jeff preach on that specifically yet. Don't worry about how much. Take this attitude. God, help me to give to the uttermost. And all of it is ultimately yours, whatever you want. But Lord, I want to give an offering to you. By the way, let me touch on a couple things. I'm going to this next note quickly. Again, Barclay writes, love never thinks how little it can decently give. Does your love for God move you to give? You say, I do love the Lord. Does your love move you to give? When you give, you say, yes, I do give to the Lord. When you give, do you calculate how little you can give? Let me ask it another way. When you give to the Lord, this is so important what I'm about to say. Is your heart still attached to your giving to the Lord? You say, Jeff, you're talking about money. I'm talking about more than that. Is your heart, your heart, think about it. Answer this, yes or no. Is your heart attached when you give to the Lord in worship? Or do you just do it robotically? When you give a financial offering, do you just write the check from habit or drop a certain amount in? Or, praise the Lord, listen, we're able to give online, and you're able, to able, if you, you're able, if you want to set it up, it can be drafted out automatically, and I'm not preaching against that. Probably two-thirds of our offerings come through the online giving, rather than in the boxes here, which is fine. It's great. But if you do that, I need, to, I need to encourage you, please always make sure, whether you're writing a check, dropping in cash, or doing it online, to attach your heart. Take that step. Don't just put it on auto, autopilot. Listen, Christians, when you read your Bible, is your heart engaged or are you just checking off chapters for Tuesday and Thursday and Wednesday? Are you just checking off chapters? When you sit and listen to God's word, are you like Mary soaking it all in? Or are you just here? Is your heart engaged? When you sing, is your heart engaged? with? The, are you like thinking along? Is that, is that triangle there? There's God and there's the words on the screen and then there's me and, and it's just doing this. Is this happening? Or are you just kind of going through the motions? Maybe not even singing or singing some. Is your heart engaged? When you pray, when you pray... Are you aware of the Lord's presence? Is your heart engaged in your prayer? Or are you just kind of going through the motions? Because all the things that I just said, those are all acts of worship. Yes, your financial giving. Yes, your reading of the word. Yes, how you listen to the word of God. How you sing, how you pray. Is your heart engaged? Second real principle, still under the second point this morning that we learned from Mary is the following. Write this down. By looking at her, we learn that real worship humbles itself so that it can exalt Jesus. Real worship, we find, humbles itself in order to exalt Jesus. That's, what, that's how you know it's real. Am, am I humbling myself to exalt? The refusal to humble themselves keeps a lot of people from being able to worship the Lord. That's my time. That's my schedule. That's my money. That's my reputation. I don't want people looking at me like I'm an idiot. And so we're very stoic and calm, cool, and collected. And maybe sometimes we don't worship the Lord how he would have us to worship. I'm not saying you have to do anything outwardly. But I'm saying if you feel like 
man, the Lord's really touching me, and I need to express this, but I'm afraid of what someone may think. Again, I thought of David. Y'all remember this? David is in the Old Testament. He dances for the Lord. I don't know what that means. I'm a horrible dancer, so I don't try. I've gone to the weddings, and people are like, oh, you didn't again. I'm like, yeah, I'll just watch you. I'm no good, I'm telling you. Deanna's been after me. Like, oh, we can take lessons. Like, okay. I'm telling you, I stink. And, uh, but anyway, we'll see. David danced for the Lord, and I don't know the details. I don't know what bothered his wife. You remember his wife? Michael, M-I-K-A-L. So Michael's his wife. Whose daughter was Michael? Saul, the former king. The former king Saul, his daughter, is now the new king, David's wife. David is dancing for the Lord. I don't know that it is that he danced for the Lord or how he danced for the Lord, but something in there in her mind was very unbecoming of the king. Kings don't do that. In fact, again, reading between the lines, I can picture Michael, and she ridicules and rebukes David. I can picture this. Well, my father would never dance like that. Well, your father doesn't love God. And I do, and David does. Here's the difference. Mary is a lot like David. Write this thought. Mary had a strong desire, a great desire for Jesus to be magnified above all others. It was so powerful in her that she was unafraid to look foolish. If need be, if she must look foolish, she is unafraid to look foolish. What is that? Uh, I'm hearing something. Oh, sorry. There we go. Thank you. Mary's at his feet. Do you see it? Mary's doing something that almost everybody in the room thinks that she is being stupid. She shouldn't be doing. Notice what Warren Wearsby writes. I like this quote. It's a lengthy one. In fact, I may not read it exactly as he has it, but I want to get the point across because I'd never noticed this. Wearsby writes the following of Mary. He says, Mary is found only three times in the Gospels. Only three times. It's in Luke. That's that where there's this meal, and Martha's very busy, and she asks Jesus, she fusses, can you please make her help me fix the meal? And the Lord says to Martha that Mary has chosen the better part. No, I'm not going to make her help you. You're all frazzled. You need to calm down. She's doing the better thing, right? So that's Luke 10. John 11 is when Lazarus was raised from the dead. John 12 is the anointing. Wearsby writes the following. He says, Mary is only found three times in the gospel, and in each instance, she's at the feet of Jesus. Think about that. She's at the feet of Jesus. She sat at his feet and listened to his word. That's Luke 10. She came to his feet in sorrow after the death of Lazarus. I had to look it up. I go look in John 11. Sure enough, she hears that Jesus is there. Her brother's dead. She comes running and falls down at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She didn't know the plan of God at the time. So again, he writes, she sat at his feet and listened to his word. She came to his feet in sorrow after the death of Lazarus, her brother, and John 12 and Matthew 26, she worshiped at his feet when she anointed him with the ointment. Wearsby writes, she was a deeply spiritual woman. She found at his feet her blessing of his words. She brought to his feet her burdens of her brother dying, and she gave at his feet her best. She gave at his feet her best. At the feet of Jesus, that's where her blessing comes from. At the feet of Jesus is where she brings her burden. And at the feet of Jesus is where she gives the best she has to give. Grace, we want to ask you, have you given God the best you have to give? When you serve, what is your heart's motive? Is your heart's desire, Jeff? When I serve, I do my best because I want to help people. That's great. That's an awesome motive. 
Or do you say, Jeff, if I do something, I'm going to do it right. I have a personal standard, the way I like things to be done. I do my best. That is great too. Nothing wrong with that. But what if your honest heart's desire was, I do want to be a blessing to people, and I do want to do it to a certain level. I need to do my best, but Lord, ultimately I want to do my best so that you are happy and pleased and magnified and exalted. I want you to have the best from me. Number three, not only a beautiful act of worship, but a judgmental response from the disciples. We find a very judgmental response from the disciples, obviously being prompted and led and following, unfortunately, the lead of someone else. So quickly, remember these principles. Real worship is willing to pay a cost, and it is willing to be extravagant. Real worship humbles itself so that it can exalt the Lord. But you'll find this as well, and this is unfortunate, Real worship often receives criticism. Real worship often receives criticism. Verse number 8. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. The disciples were indignant. You guys see that word, indignant? Indignant, I found, carries, at least in English, at least a couple of thoughts, and I think both are taking place here. I'm going to feel between the lines, okay? I'm getting ready to step outside of what the Scripture says. I'm going to give you my opinion. But indignant means annoyance or anger or annoyance and anger that is due to something being seen as wrong. That is wrong. And so it's annoying. That's just wrong. That's annoying. And it makes me angry because I think that thing is wrong. That's what's happening. The disciples are annoyed with Mary. The disciples are angry at Mary. They become judgmental toward Mary. Ultimately, they end up scolding Mary. And in that phrase I pointed out a few minutes ago in verse, verse 10, Jesus, aware of this, that tells me that it doesn't happen immediately right side by side beside the Lord. Aware of this, Jesus, aware of this in verse number 10, indicates, here's what that tells me. Their anger and their annoyance begin as muttering. In fact, probably internal thought. It goes like this. Again, I'm reading between the lines. Perhaps she starts their fellowship and having a meal. Here comes Mary, Martha's servant. Others are helping serve. Here comes Mary. And she pulls out this flask, breaks the top of it, and she starts to pour out this on the Lord. And then... uh, what is, uh, can we uh, possibly have that? I don't know, maybe somebody help turn it on mute if we're able. It's, uh, it's what? Okay. Thank you. All right. Uh, let's find where we were at. Yes. Look at verse 10. You ready? Let's, let's dive right back in. Verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has done a beautiful thing. Jesus, aware of this. Guys, could you imagine? Again, I'm reading between the lines. I think this may have been, again, a little how it happened. Picture, they're around this table. They're reclining. And Mary somehow starts pouring this ointment. But it's going to come out very, very slowly. And so the ointment is being poured out upon the Lord. 
And imagine as that first starts wafting through the air, the, the, the disciples' first thought is, wow. You with me? That's the good stuff. That's the real. I know. And then it probably goes more. She doesn't just put like a dab. A dab would have done for days. But she puts more, and she puts it on his feet. And all of a sudden, they're probably thinking, wow, she's laying it all thick. That's the good stuff. That's the real stuff. That's the uncut stuff, man. And she's putting it on thick, man. We're talking about a lot. Do you have any? I know it's a lot. All right. But then eventually, she keeps going. And stuff comes out slow, and they're probably thinking like, okay, that's enough. That's enough. Knock it off to where eventually... They're not just thinking inwardly. They're muttering and mumbling, and it must carry to another area to finally they're like full-fledged. What is the matter with you? As she finally, no, you didn't. You you just poured the whole $30,000. What is wrong? Are you stupid? Are you an idiot? And they're angry at her. And you're like, man, you really act that out really well. Are you like that with people? I hope I'm not. But I think that's what's taking place. I wonder if they're actually not even inwardly annoyed with Jesus. Why is he letting this happen? We can never get this collected back in the bottle. What's taking place? And of course, Judas is the ringleader. Listen carefully. Why is Judas the ringleader? Because Judas is loveless. Judas is criticizing true worship because he has no love. Judas is not only loveless, he's a hypocrite. He's a betrayer, and he's a thief who's consumed with money. He's consumed with the opposite of what she's doing. He's consumed with money. You hear him? Do you hear him? We could have had $30,000 for the poor. <laughs> you know, for the poor. As everybody looks at him like, man, you seem really ticked that you don't get to put $30,000 in the money bag that you keep. And we know that was his attitude. Write this thought. And we'll go to the last point. Judas, I think, represents some people, and I want to encourage you, don't let it be you. Judas represents this group. Many people can come up with religious-sounding reasons to question the genuine worship of others while they do nothing. Let me say it again. I'll give you the last part of the note in a moment. Judas represents many people, listen to me, who can come up with religious sounding, not Bible reasons, but man, very religious. We could have done that, give it to the poor. Very religious sounding reasons for condemning and questioning genuine worship while they do nothing. Now, here's the thing. When they see genuine worship, their immediate response is to think it's not real. They assume that's not real. That's fake. They're faking why? I'm going to tell you why they assume this. Because it's not real in them. It's not real in them. They think that can't be real in that person. And so they begin to judge and to criticize. We've got to be careful that this is not us. Guys, we live in a world where people think Christians are wasting your life. They, they, honestly, you guys are wasting your time. Down there. You should be sleeping in. Go have all this crazy activity on Saturday and sleep in on Sunday. And if you want, just do a little cookout on, on Sunday afternoon. But you could just chill and just relax and sleep in your pajamas all day. Get all the yard work and all the running around, all the crazy stuff on Saturday and just chill. You guys, you don't need to go down there that often. You don't need to go to those Bible studies so much. You don't need to go to church so much. You don't need to give so much. You're wasting your life. 
But look at what they're investing their lives in. You guys don't need to sing so passionately and so loudly. Well, what do you do at the ball game? I notice you don't miss a single home game as your season ticket holder. And I notice, how much did you say you give to the booster club? Well, listen, I'm investing in something that's going to last a whole lot longer than some sports team, as Brandon already pointed out. You get really animated and really loud down at the ball game, but we can't get a boo out of you at the Lord's house. Not Mary. Mary is excited about the things of the Lord. She cared. Some people think maybe they were. God didn't lead her to pour that on Jesus. Yes, he did. Just before we hit the last point, I, I wrote this thought. For me and us, a major lesson we need to learn is, guys, we need to be careful about trying to judge the level of sincerity of the worship of others who are zealous, more zealous than we are. Careful that you don't try to judge the level of sincerity in the worship of others who are more zealous than we are. And remember, the Lord hates lukewarmness among his people. Number four, a defense from Jesus. Jesus comes to the defense just quickly, verse 10. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? She has done what you call evil, a waste. Jesus calls a beautiful thing. You see something bad in her actions. The Lord says, I see something wonderful in her actions. I see a heart that is pure and that is filled with love and filled with faith. Listen, don't criticize, the Lord is saying, don't criticize those who love me supremely when they worship me zealously. Don't ever be caught criticizing. Verse 11, Jesus says, for you always have the poor. That's their big reason this could have been sold and given to the poor. Jesus correctly, this is still true. You always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. I want to borrow again from Wearsby, I think the second time today. Wearsby writes the following. He says, Jesus did not criticize the disciples because they were concerned about the poor. So I'm going to make a distinction. Everybody with me? I know Judas didn't care about the poor, but I'm going to assume the other guys actually did because Judas starts this refrain. It could have been given to the poor. And they're probably like, yeah, the poor could have really used this. Wearsby's correct. Jesus does not criticize the disciples because they are concerned about the poor. He was concerned about the poor, and we should be too. He was cautioning them against missing their opportunity to worship him. Here's what Christ is saying. You can, God, and this is still true today. You can help the poor anytime you want. I don't, I don't mean this derogatorily. They're not hard to find. You and I can help the poor anytime we want. But the Lord is saying soon you will not be able to do for me personally. We're down to 48 hours. If you're going to do anything for me personally, we're down to 48 hours. Or just six days if you want to count it back from Saturday. They're not hard to find. Verse 11. One more quick thought, and I'm hitting verse 12 after that. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always. Y'all see a distinction? Jesus is giving a ranking. At the ministry that I served at previous to here, it was on, out here on Highway 28. A lot of people would walk in, and they'd want help, and they had needs, or they had family members with needs. And those, because I was on... Uh, staff as an assistant, those got filtered to me. And it didn't take that long because the volume being right on 28 bypass, so many people would come, the budget money would be gone pretty quickly. And maybe like, we can take you over here and get you some food and get this, that, and the other. And we would help where we could, but eventually it just got gone. We had to kind of get creative and hey, this, that, and the other, and trying to, to blend it together. I remember more than once people getting really angry if we didn't do what we wanted. 
do what they wanted. Had one that we helped multiple times, and they had their family member calling from White Horse Road in Greenville wanting us to pay bills up there. And I'm like, uh, yeah, we're not able to do it. Well, then what's the purpose of you? Seriously, they got very angry. Like, what's the point of church if, you don't, if we can't call you up and get help? That's how some people think. Write this thought. Many people only think of Christianity in terms of social agendas. That's like they think of church, social agendas, helping the poor, politics, civil rights. Many think of Christianity in terms of social agendas only, but we need to be reminded by what the Lord is showing us. The primary work of the church is souls. It is souls. Why? Because the spiritual condition of a person ultimately determines the difference between eternal life and eternal punishment. How is a person's souls? Yes, you're saying, Jeff, we shouldn't help the poor. Absolutely we help the poor. That is something the church should do. That's something Grace View does. We should do that. That's not the only thing we do. That's not anywhere near the main thing that we do. That's what I'm learning from verse 11. You always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. MacArthur writes it this way. Did you catch it? So there's a ranking. This is important, but these things are far more important. MacArthur writes, and I agree with this. You may not. You may not. He says, there is a time for ministering to the poor. Listen, there is a time for ministering to the poor, the sick, the naked, and the imprisoned. Listen, there is a time for witnessing to the lost. And seeking to lead them to the Savior. There is a time for that. He further says there is a time for discipling new believers. And helping them grow in the faith. There is a time for careful study and preaching of God's word. Yes, there's a time for that. But he's correct by saying above all else that the Lord requires of his people is their true worship. Say that again. There's a time for ministering. He says there's a time for witnessing to the lost. There's a time for discipling new believers. There's a time for studying and teaching God's word. But above all else that the Lord requires of his people is, the, is their true worship of Christ. Worship is at the top. You say, I don't know that I agree with that. These other things are more. No. All those other things, guys, are supposed to flow out of our worship. The Lord wants you to spend time with him and worship and adore and give and love on him. Again, just verbally in any way you possibly can, be connected to him so that when you minister to the poor and witness to the lost and disciple new believers and study his word, it's an outflow of your worship. So what does verse 12 mean? In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare for my burial. Leave her alone. In fact, I think it was Mark says, leave her alone. Jesus says, leave her alone. He really stands up. Why? Because in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. So what does verse 12 mean? I don't know. Okay, so let's hit verse 13. No, I'm kidding. Right, I'm going to offer this. It could, guys, it could mean this. She doesn't fully understand what she did, but I count it. I know what's coming in just days, and it counts us to my body. That is very possibly what is, the way it's written, it's unclear. So this is an unclear wording. But I want to propose to you 
Let's just take it at face value. Write this down. I think that Jesus is actually indicating that in all of her, this woman's special, I'm telling you, in all of her intense listening to the Lord, it does seem like Mary was perhaps the first person, the first to really grasp what Jesus is saying about his upcoming death. And then her mind starts thinking, he's going to die. They don't get it. He's saying it very plainly. They think he's not literal. Nothing he said has given us any reason to not take it literally. Jesus is going to be crucified. And apparently this is her thought. I have this, and if he were dead right now, I would use this for his body, but I don't want to wait till he's dead. I want to pour it on him while he's alive. I want to do it now while he's with me. And what a great expression of faith and love. But what if it goes even further? What if her thought is this? He keeps saying he's going to be crucified, but he's going to rise three days later. If he rises three days later, his body's not going to be decomposed, and so he's not going to need these ointments. I want to do it now. And so she get, if that is the case, we're talking about tremendous levels of light and revelation and faith and love this, woman's one, this woman reminds me of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7, who really seems to get a lot before anybody else really gets, even some of the apostles. Stephen was like way ahead, and then they killed him. But Mary seems miles ahead of the apostles in understanding what the Lord has been saying. Last couple of thoughts. Look at verse 12 and 13 together. Here we go. You ready? Jesus says, I'm pouring this ointment on my body. She has done it to prepare for my... What's the last word of verse 12? Say it out loud. To prepare for my... Burial. Verse 13, truly, he's still talking. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in, in memory of her. Last word of verse 12 is the context. My burial. Look at verse 13. This has to be the most puzzling things to the disciples who lacked light. In their very limited understanding at this time, this has to be extremely confusing. She's done it for my burial. They've just left hours earlier being told he's going to be crucified. Now verse, and they've been told three times. And a fourth time, it's only a couple days away. Now look at verse 13. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel. Y'all help me. The word gospel means good news. That's our English word. I'll promise you this. Whatever word in their language that gospel stands for, we know it means good news. They know, they know that Jesus is talking about wherever this gospel, wherever this good news is preached. If they're thinking at all, they have to wonder. He's just talking about his death and his burial. And now he's talking about where that gospel, that good news, is proclaimed around the world. What is the good news in declaring his death and burial? They don't get it. You get it, right? Do I even have to say it? So here's the question. Why would Jesus refer to his death and burial and then speak of, of proclaiming that around the world as some sort of good news? Because his death and burial are not the final chapter. His death and burial and resurrection is what gives us eternal life. Verse 13, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And today we're fulfilling this verse. And I'm not the only pastor in America. I'm not the only pastor in South Carolina preaching on this text today. I'll, I'll guarantee you somebody else in South Carolina and all around the United States and around the world are preaching on this exact passage. And we're talking about this lady. 
J.C. Ryle writes the following. He says, the deeds and titles of many a king and emperor and general are as completely forgotten as if written in sand. Say it again. Hear it carefully. He writes, the deeds, the actions, and the titles of many a king and emperor and general, military general, are as completely forgotten as if written in the sand. There's been many generals done wonderful things, brilliant moves. Nobody remembers. You say, which ones? Which kings and emperors and generals? That's the point. We don't remember them at all. But he says, but the grateful act of one humble Christian woman is known all over the globe. What does that tell us? Write this thought. Verse 13 just proves that God really honors the worship of Jesus. God the Father honors and loves the worship of His Son, Jesus Christ. He wants you to be part of that. Are you like Mary? Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed. In a moment, we'll pray and we'll be dismissed. Can I ask you? Christian, this is for Christians, really, for those of us who've known the Lord. Ask yourself honestly, how is my worship today? Is it genuine? Is it real? Real worship is often costly. Think with me, ladies and gentlemen. Bring the Lord into focus and ask the Lord to help you to really apply this as He would see fit. Real worship is often costly and it's willing to be extravagant. So can I ask you, what has your worship of God? You say, I love the Lord. I know I do. What does it ever cost you? What does it cost you? Hey, let me just ask you, when's the last time your love for God led to something extravagant, a little over the top that others might even question? When is the last time you've done anything extravagant because you're led to, because you just love the Lord? Not commanded, not told, not have to. Just When's the last time you're like, Lord, I want to do this. I want to do this for you. I love you, and you've been so good to me. You've saved me. You're my creator. You're my sustainer. You're the Lord. You're the king. You're my best friend. Every good thing I have, every good thing I have is exactly run back to you. You're the source of all good things for me. I just want to do this for you. When's the last time extravagance and cost described your worship of Christ and of God the Father? Let me ask you, do you find it hard at a time of worship to get yourself? You're like, man, I'm, I'm trying to pray to the Lord, and I need to adore Him, but all I can do is keep asking for more from me. I'm, my self-centeredness is the focus of the majority of my prayer. Is that true of you? When's the last time you can say that you just talk to the Lord just to talk to the Lord? When you sing corporately with God's people, when is the last time you just got lost in the singing, in the worship, and not worried at all about what anyone else might think, what anyone else might see in you. We need to be like, hey, listen, I'm not saying come in here next week and put on and fake. We don't need any wildfire, any wildfire whatsoever. But boy, it'd be great if we were just like David and just like, you know what? I'm just going to worship the Lord because I love Him and He's so good to me. Those of you, this is you. You faithfully use your spiritual gift. You use your spiritual gift. Can you say along with that, that I do it from my heart as an act of worship, and I get alone with the Lord? 
Do you worship him privately? Are you the kind of Christian who calculates the least you can do? Don't be that person. And maybe as important as anything I'll finish with is this thought. Please, please, please don't be the person who inwardly casts judgment on someone else's sincerity when they are more zealous. Their whole life is more zealous than you. Be careful that we are not those people. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, Lord, I thank you for this example of Mary. Lord, I'm convicted. I realize I fall very far short. Lord, I pray that we would be like Lazarus and be a witness for you, a faithful witness, and that our lives, Lord, would give evidence of your power and your identity. Father, I pray that we would be a witness. Lord, I pray that we would be like Martha and God really be workers for you, like really serving Serving joyfully, intentionally, because we love you and let our service be that. But Father, I pray that along with that, and that those things flowing from this, God, that you would make us more than anything, more like Mary that had a heart of a worshiper. You are worthy. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all of our praise. And may we lavish our absolute best on you, holding nothing back, removing ourselves out of the way, humbling ourselves so that we can exalt you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.